well, it was about one year ago today, almost exactly, that the Queen of England died. She had like a 70-year run of reigning. Um, and she, uh, as many knew, she had a really great sense of humor. And so that was one of the things a lot of people appreciated about her. And that sense of humor is well displayed in this story. So uh, one day she was walking around. She was at her castle, her holiday castle in Scotland at uh, Balmoral Castle. And, uh, and the grounds there are open to the public. So you could kind of be walking around and touring around there. Well, she and her, um, her royal protection officer, Robert, were walking around on the grounds there. And they're just kind of taking a little hike through. And they ran into a couple of tourists. And these American tourists walk up to, to them and they just kind of strike up this little conversation. And in the middle of the conversation, it becomes pretty clear that these people have no idea who they're talking to. And so they're talking to the queen and they're just like, well, well, how, you know, uh, how, where do you live? And the queen says, um, I live in London and, uh, but I've got a little summer a holiday place here, you know, and, and they're, oh, okay, well, that's really wonderful. How long have you been coming here? And she says, oh, about 80 years. And they go, wow, that's, have you met the queen before? And she says, like, understanding the moment. This is the thing that I, I think is pretty cool about the queen. She understood the moment. She says, no, but Robert here meets with her regularly. And so Robert is on the hook and he kind of, oh, okay. And so these American tourists, they say, what is she like? What's the queen like? And he says, kind of looks at the queen and he says, well, you know, she's a little cantankerous sometimes, <laughs> but she's got a lovely sense of humor. And so these American tourists are just blown away. They are talking to this guy who meets regularly with the queen. How cool is that? So they say, can we get a picture with you? And Robert, probably assuming that is a picture with the queen, Robert was shocked when the tourists grab him by the shoulder and they go, here, and they hand the camera to the queen of England and say, would you take a picture of us? The reason that I tell you that story is we're wrapping up our series Encountering Jesus. And the story that we're looking at today is a story about not recognizing Jesus for who he is. And the big question that we're going to be asking ourselves today is who is the Savior and what is he saving us from? Who is the Savior and what is he saving us from? Today you can find a Jesus, some version of Jesus, to be just about anything you want him to be. You can find a Jesus, you'll hear about a Jesus who is a feminist. And that's really what he was all about. You'll find people who will say that Jesus was a self-help guru. He was somebody that just kind of helped people, helped them help themselves along the way. Some people will say that Jesus was a communist. He was the original communist. Some people will say that Jesus was a, uh, is, a, is a great way to get rich. You will have people swear that Jesus is a conservative. And you'll have people promise you that he was a blue progressive. When I was at the uh, 4th of July parade here, some of us were gathered together at the Hillsborough Happy Days parade. A truck went by, and on the back of the truck, there was a picture, a painting of Jesus with a crown of thorns 
holding an American flag. Everybody wants to join Jesus to their cause. Everybody wants to claim Jesus as their own. But who is Jesus really? And my question for us today, for for Westside today, is does Jesus get to have a say in who he is in your life? Does Jesus get to have a say in what he is saving you from in your life? Or are you the one who gets to decide all that? There's a comedy, uh, and I won't mention the name, but uh, it's, it's about a goofy NASCAR driver. And he's praying for dinner uh, one day, and he starts his prayer, Dear little baby Jesus. And as he kind of goes on, some other people at the table remind him, Well, you know, Jesus grew up, right? And he became a man. And the guy's response is, Well, maybe, but I like to think of Jesus as a little baby. So he continues his prayer and he doubles down. He says, dear little eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus, wearing your golden diapers, can't even say a word. And that's the one he wants to pray to. And now to us, it, it, that humor lands because there, there's something true about it. There's something true that everybody wants to co-opt Jesus, to make him into something that they really want. Everybody wants to be able to be free to imagine Jesus however they want. But the question that we're going to be asking ourselves today is, what say does Jesus get to have in that? Who is the Savior? And what is he saving us from? In our story today in Luke 24, Jesus walks with two very sad disciples who don't recognize him or understand his mission, even after Jesus had told them repeatedly. So how does Jesus respond to those who should have recognized him and should have known better? And this starts us on the path to the question, how do you believe that Jesus responds to you in your unbelief, in your moments of doubt? How do you think Jesus responds to you? Maybe you're here today, And you've heard a lot about Jesus, or maybe a little bit about Jesus, for a long part of your life. But you know that you've never really given yourself to him. That you've never gone all in. I want you to ask yourself that question today. If Jesus were walking with you, what do you think his posture toward you would be? Well, we're picking up our story in Luke chapter 24. If you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to turn to it. I'm going to have the verses up on the screen as well. A week before this part where we're picking up here, uh, Jesus had gone into Jerusalem. He had taught publicly. And then he was betrayed and handed over to the religious leaders. They put him through a trial of sorts and found him guilty of blasphemy. But because the Jews were under Roman authority... They didn't have the authority to put somebody to death. So the Jewish leaders had to convince Pilate, the Roman governor, to actually put him to death. So Jesus, on a Friday, is crucified. And our story picks up just a couple days later here on a Sunday. And just before this part here, we're we're picking up in Luke chapter 24, verse 13. But just before this part, some women had gone to the tomb hoping to put some spices on the body of Jesus, kind of as a way to pay homage to him. But when they got there, they noticed that not only was uh, it wasn't sealed up, the grave was like the stone was rolled away. 
and the body wasn't there. And so they went back and they told the other 12 disciples about this. So we're going to pick up the story here on that very same day, okay? So here, oh, we can be done with the picture of the queen. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, that came out wrong. Um, anyway, that, that very day, and so this is the same day as the resurrection, two of them, these are two of the disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. So to answer Jason's earlier question, that's about a two and a half to three hour walk uh, from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went to them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, there's a lot of theories as to why did the people not recognize him. These these two disciples who have clearly seen Jesus before, but they didn't recognize him. Some people say it's, well, because he had a cloak over his head. Some people say it's because the last time they saw him, he had a crown of thorns on. He had been beat up and his his beard was plucked out and all this stuff. But the thing is, is it doesn't put the, uh, it doesn't say that it's Jesus who's making it hard to recognize. It's actually their eyes were kept from recognizing him. There's something about Jesus that is human that it didn't make them be like, what in the world is this creature that we're talking to? And yet at the same time, they couldn't recognize him. So why in the world does Jesus go all anonymous here, right? Why does he keep them from recognizing him? And I think that the reason is that Jesus wants to drive home the point. Who is the Savior? It's a mystery. It's a mystery to these guys. These guys don't recognize him. Who is the Savior and what is he here to save you from? And so he said to them, what conversation, what's this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? Did you notice that the first thing that Jesus does to these two disciples who have heard Jesus say, I'm going to go into Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be crucified, but I'm going to raise on the third day. They've heard him say that at least three times in the Gospel of Luke so far, right? So these guys should have known better, but how does he approach them? Do you notice this? He just walks alongside and he asks a question. Now when you imagine Jesus coming up to you after a major failure, how do you imagine his posture towards you? Do you imagine him just berating you? Just being so angry at you? He's saying, gosh, I'm so tired of you. Or do you imagine him just abandoning you and saying, you know what? I've had enough. I struggle with that. When, I'm, when I've failed, I just imagine God just being a really big, disappointed dad. Because if I'm honest with myself, I'm just disappointed in me too. But notice, the one time in Scripture that Jesus talks about who he is at his heart level, the one time that Jesus said, this is what my heart is like. Do you remember what he said? The one time he said that. He said, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus is kind. Jesus is gentle. He's meek. And so it makes sense that this one would draw near, just walk up to them, and start asking some very gentle questions. Well, they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas, which uh, I almost named Matthew Cleopas. Uh, You're welcome, I didn't. Um, 
named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened in these days? And oh Lord, they're saying like, Are you kidding me? Seriously, you don't know what's going on? Now, the irony of this is, this is a little bit like the people asking the, the queen to take a photo of the bodyguard, right? It's, this is so backwards. Of course Jesus knows those things were done to him. But do you notice his meek, kind, gentle response? And he says to them, what things? He asks another question. And I don't think Jesus is just playing coy here. I believe Jesus is wanting to get to their hearts. Parents, you probably get this. Do you ever ask your kids questions that you 100% know the answer to, but you're just helping them get there too? You understand what I'm talking about? That's what a gentle parent does. This is how Jesus is toward us, like a loving, kind, gentle father. Well, and they said to him, you know, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. There it is. You see it? Why are they sad? Why are they defeated? We had hoped. It's in the past tense. Like, in other words, another way to say what they're saying is Jesus is not the one to redeem Israel. We're bummed. But it's an interesting thing. So we had hoped... That gives us a big clue. But there's another very, very key word in here that I think is worth exploring just a little bit. And that is the word redeem. Now, we think we know what they're talking about when we use, when they said the word redeem, right? Because we've got, you know, redeemed how I love to proclaim it and all that kind of stuff. But do you remember the first time that the word redeem is actually used in the scripture? I, I, I learned this this week. The first time that the word redeem is used in the scripture, it's not so much about buying someone back. It's, there's, there's some of that. But look at this. In Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 7, just to set the context, this is the Lord commissioning Moses to go and deliver the Israelites from the oppression of the Egyptians. Remember, they had been enslaved for 400 years. And so check this out. Say therefore to the people of Israel, this is the Lord talking to Moses, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The redemption that these Israelites were looking for was not so much freedom from sin, freedom from death. They wanted freedom from Rome. And sometimes we can look into that and be like, well, gosh, how could they not understand? You really need to be saved from sin. You you, you know, Rome is just like a temporary thing or whatever, right? I know I tend to fall into that camp a little bit. But you know what's crazy is... As we talk about 
Who is Jesus? Who is the Savior? What is He saving us from? We find that we do the very same thing. If you would just save my marriage, mm, that would be so good. If you would just get, Lord, if you would just get my kids to listen to me, that's what I really, really need. Lord, if you would just heal me, if you would heal my wife, Lord, if you just take care of my finances. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't want to do any of those things. I'm not saying that God's against those things. But sometimes we want to create a Savior who just helps us be more independent from God. If we're honest. Lord, if, if, if I had my finances together, I wouldn't need you so much. And what we want is we want a Savior that just makes our lives a little bit better. So one other thing, that got heavy real fast. Um, one other thing, the um, you notice one little detail, and I will be brief on this, but one little detail. Do you remember where they were going, these two disciples? Do you remember? You can say it out loud, it's okay. Emmaus, yeah, they're going to Emmaus. So Emmaus is actually kind of a, a, an important town historically for Jewish history. Uh, you know, back about 150 years before Jesus came, there was this great revolt where the Jewish people had been oppressed and oppressed, and the Seleucids, a, a, a big army, were, were against them, and they were just kind of trying to snuff this out. And the, the Maccabean Revolt, as this was called, the, the Jewish people here, they had had some success uh, against the Seleucids, this big kingdom. But there was this time where... The, the Seleucid army came and there was a big army and they were ready to just thrash and just completely stomp out this Maccabean revolt. But instead what happened is the Maccabees, they actually brought the fight to the Seleucid kingdom here. They brought it to this encampment, this big encampment of a bunch of soldiers. And they made a major victory there. And the name of that town where the Seleucids were camped was called Emmaus. So it's kind of an interesting detail that Luke would add that in here, and I think it helps us understand a little bit as to where these disciples were going and what they were expecting. It might be for us Americans, it might be a little bit like us saying, we're going to Gettysburg. Or maybe another one, I'm going to Normandy. It's a place where we've experienced some kind of great victory. We can just kind of feel better about ourselves. But it goes on. The story goes on. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. These are the disciples talking again. Moreover, some of our women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they didn't find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they didn't see. So these two disciples are perplexed. And they're saddened. Clearly, Jesus is not the Messiah that they were hoping for. They had heard him say something about being put to death and rising again on the third day. But I imagine that they had some way of understanding that that was just kind of metaphorical. Like, I'd kind of be, you know, like some kind of metaphorical death. But then rising again would be his, like, ascendancy to greatness. 
And I, I love, uh, this is my boy, Bob. Um, he's got a great comment on this. He's kind of a Bible scholar. He says this, all the disciples, including these two men on the road to Emmaus, had so rigorously held to a non-suffering Messiah, a triumphant king, but not a suffering servant, that they concluded Jesus could not possibly be the Messiah because he had suffered and died. In spite of a mountain of evidence, all of which pointed to his resurrection, they were solidly convinced all over, or convinced it was all over, and that he, alas, was only a prophet. The Jews were an oppressed people, but they were God's people. And so surely God would want to free them from this oppression. But Jesus came to save them from so much more than oppression. If Jesus was the Savior, what was he saving them from? Imagine, what if Jesus had come to only deliver the Israelites from the oppression of Rome? What would happen for, I mean, what would happen for us? That's a whole other question, but what would happen for them? Just think think through that a little bit. God comes and delivers them through Jesus from Roman oppression. Their lives are better. But guess what? They end their lives and they spend eternity apart from God. It sounds pretty simple when we think of it for another people a long time ago in a different place. But how many of us treat Jesus just a little bit like the way I want to think of him? Like which Jesus are, are we praying to? Which Jesus do we worship? Is it eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus in golden diapers? Probably not. But it may be nearly as farcical to think of. So Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Do you see what the issue is here? Do you see what the issue is here? It can't be one of a lack of information. The disciples had surely read the Old Testament for their whole youth. So they were well acquainted with it. What does Jesus say here? O foolish ones, and slow of ears to hear. O foolish ones, and slow of mind to understand. No. O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. That these two had fallen into a trap that many Christians would fall into much later and still are in today. And that is, we believe selective things about Jesus. We like to believe that he's kind of this. I kind of like to picture Jesus like this. But look at what Jesus says. He says, you, you slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. All the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, especially these two seemingly contradictory things. One, that he would suffer, and two, then he would enter his glory. Many of us have got some kind of idea as to what we think that Jesus should save us from. Some of us here think that our lives and everybody's lives would be so much better if our guy won the next political election. And so we just put all of our eggs in that basket. Some of us think everything would be better if we could just have the family that we really want to have. 
Some of us think that, you know, uh, our finances are what's really, really keeping us from the good life. And the question I think that this text gets us to is, who is your Savior? And what are you being saved from? Does Jesus get to define for you and for me who He is and what He's saving us from? Because brothers and sisters, friends, He made us. He redeemed us. He gets to have, I'm sorry, but all the say in what He's going to save us from. He gets to have all the say in who He is. And if you don't believe it, if you, you know, maybe it's not eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus, but maybe it's, maybe it's Jesus who loves families and I just want you to restore my family. Is that good? Of course it's good. But He's the Savior. And we see so many who walk away from Jesus sad because He didn't fit their mold of what a Savior should be. He's the one who gets to decide though. Do you see that in this passage? Do you see that in this text? Jesus did not come to make our lives here better. Jesus came to bring us something that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for us. That's what he came for. And he is doing it. He is at work. But sometimes we don't see it because that's kind of hard to see. The scriptures are clear that our deepest problem is that we are separated from God because of our sins. We've decided to go our own way and we don't want anyone to tell us what to do. We want to be self-ruled and we want to be self-sustaining. Many who would call themselves Christians would be happy to just let God make their lives a little bit better so that they can continue living independently of Him. But the clear teaching of the Bible is that mankind was designed to live in communion with God, our source of life. We were made to be plugged in with Him. But sin separates us from that source of life. So striving and... For uh, So striving for purpose and meaning, when you're separated from your source of life, it's like drowning and being worried that your shoes are wet. Jesus came to save us from so much more than that. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, Uh, In them, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Seven miles takes about two and a half to three hours to walk in that kind of climate and that kind of uh, terrain. Can you imagine Jesus for two and a half to three hours doing a Bible study with you personally? How awesome would that be? Would that not be the coolest thing ever? What do you think that he said in those two and a half to three hours? I think it's pretty amazing that Luke doesn't actually tell us what Jesus talked about in those two and a half to three hours. And I think part of the reason is, one, so that 
uh, that we would not just be limited to thinking that it's just those passages that, that speak of Jesus. Because that two and a half to three hours could have gone for seven months if that's what it was going to be, if it was going to be to show them everything. But Jesus just goes through and he shows them some things. But I think the second reason is this, is that he wants to inspire us to look into those things and see what, what things about Jesus. So we look in the Old Testament because, you know, Jesus seems to think that the whole Old Testament is about him. He, he seems to think that pretty clearly. And so when we go back through the Old Testament, what do we see? And I, I wonder if Jesus had maybe talked about some of these verses. That Jesus is the true Servant of the Lord from Isaiah 53. Listen to Isaiah 53. It's just gonna, I'm just gonna read it for you. This, this is before Jesus came, by the way, for those who don't know. This was written like hundreds of years before Jesus came, but it's such an incredible description of Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amen? All right. Uh, Maybe Jesus told them how he is the true and better shepherd who would rescue the flock himself. In Ezekiel 34, God is, has condemned the shepherds of Israel. He says, okay, that's it. I'm going to come and I'm going to do it myself. Maybe he told them that he's the true and better serpent on the pole. In Numbers 21, the bronze serpent was lifted up on a pole, symbolizing Jesus becoming a curse for us. And everyone who would just look at that pole would be healed. And just in the same way that everybody who looks to the Son of Man when he's lifted up from the earth would be healed. Maybe he told them how he is the true and better King David who would reign forever. Maybe he told them how he's the true fulfillment of the Psalms. Maybe Jesus spent like a minute in Psalm 22 and just went over like, there's like 20 references to what Jesus would do in Psalm 22 alone. It's packed with stuff. And maybe Jesus took a moment to show how he is the true fulfillment of the Psalms. Maybe he would have talked about how he was the true fulfillment of Isaac. You remember that Abraham was promised a son and he was, it was going to be his one son, the only son that he loved. That sounds familiar. The only son that he loved and he was called to sacrifice his son. And so he takes him up on Mount Moriah, which is amazingly near the temple in Jerusalem. He goes up Mount Moriah, and there a substitute takes the son's place. Maybe he talked about how he was the true and better Isaac. Maybe he talked about how he was the true seed of Eve who would crush the head of the serpent. You remember when, when God is giving the curse in Genesis chapter 3? He talks about, he talks to Eve about the seed of the woman, your seed, somebody from your line is going to come. He's going to be the promised one. And what did he say he's going to do? He said, he's, he's talking to the snake, he shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. Maybe he talked about how he's the true and better Adam. Adam was tested and failed and brought the curse of God into the world. But Jesus was tested and won. 
and broke the curse for us. Adam ate the fruit and brought condemnation on humanity. Jesus took our condemnation and gives us himself. When Adam was called to account for his sin, God calling him out, Adam said, don't blame me, blame her. But Jesus, when he is standing before God for us, who, the one who had never sinned, he says, don't blame her, blame me. Maybe he talked about that a little bit. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. And he acted as if he was going further, which I love that, that he was like, oh, I'm going to just keep going here. But they urged him to stay strongly, saying, stay with us, for it's toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. So when did Jesus choose to reveal himself to these two discouraged disciples? He could have done it while he was talking on the road, while he's doing the Old Testament Bible study. He could have done it actually right when he came up. He could have just said, hi, it's me. Done. But instead, he lets them see what their issue is. He lets them see That it's not just about knowing the right things. It's not just about hearing the right things. It's believing. And he lets them understand that. But he's revealed to them when he breaks bread and he gives it to them. Does that sound really, really, really familiar? Like we did it like 20 minutes ago? Jesus had just done it a couple days before with his disciples. He took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Take it. Eat it. He's revealed to them and their eyes are opened. They see him for who he really is. They see and understand who is the Savior and what is he saving me from. It's so much bigger than what they had thought. Far bigger than being saved from the oppression of Romans. These people could now walk in freedom. So that that very last enemy, the worst thing that Rome could promise you is death. But now if death is defeated, well then who cares about Rome? Not that Rome didn't matter at all, but it's like, well that's not the biggest thing. Is is this tracking? I mean, to me that just makes... It's so easy to see it in them in Israel 2,000 years ago, especially because I'm reading about it. But it's so much harder for us to put that into our own context, isn't it? Who is the Savior? Who am I acting like the Savior is right now? And what do I want him to save me from? Well, we'll finish out the story here. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us? while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, hey, this, this is what the other eleven people told them. Hey, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. And they were like, yeah, I know, we saw him too. Then they told him what happened on the road and how he was no, made known to them in the breaking of bread. 
Uh, just three, three points to close here. These two disciples got to walk with Jesus for two and a half to three hours. I mean, hearing directly from him themselves in an Old Testament study. How awesome would that be? You know, God has promised us the same thing. He said, I'm with you. He gives us his spirit so we can understand the scriptures. Um, Many of us lack awe in our lives. We sing that song, May I Never Lose the Wonder. Oh, the wonder of your mercy. Many of us lack awe. And you know, a lack of awe leads to anxiety and depression. Anxiety and depression have been on a meteoric rise since about 2012, the advent of the smartphone. Um, And I think one of the things we learn from that is that distraction is the enemy of awe. Are we putting ourselves in a position to be in awe of who God is? I would love to encourage you. If you if you aren't just reading from the scriptures regularly, I would just love to encourage you. Pick up the scriptures. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Second, the two men start the story by walking away from Jerusalem over toward Emmaus. And they end the story by running back to Jerusalem. Um, fear and disappointment led them to fleeing from Jerusalem. Because remember who was in Jerusalem when they went back? It was the 11 disciples, right? So it's like you've got this picture that you've got this group, the dudes who, yes, they're confused. Yes, they don't understand what's going on. And they're very discouraged. But you know what? They're hanging out together. But these two guys, they leave. They leave the community. And I would love to encourage you. Some of us are going through times of doubts, fear, frustration, Sadness, do not let that drive you away from God's people. Because you know what happened as soon as these people realized who Jesus was, what did they do? They ran back to tell others. There are other people in your life who need to hear what God is doing in your life. And sometimes you forget the gospel. Sometimes I forget the gospel, and I need to be in a community where people who remember the gospel, who are experiencing the benefits of the gospel, can remind me because I forget. Can you imagine what this story would be like if these guys just stayed in Emmaus? We might not even have it in our Bibles right now. Lastly, have you made a Savior based on how you perceive your deepest need? You have to understand that the first symptom of this disease is that you don't think you have a disease. Your deepest problem is not someone outside of you or some other problem out there. The scriptures show that our deepest problem is fundamentally that we are separated from God because of our sin. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the good news of the story is that God sent his son, Jesus, into the world to live the perfect life that you didn't live. He deserved no judgment from God, but he took it all for you. But when the Father looked on us, sinful people, and the consequences of our, that our sin would bring, Jesus stepped in and said, don't blame her, blame me. I love the way that an old preacher put it a long time ago. He said like this, he said, you can stand before God 
as if you were Christ. Because Christ stood before God as if he were you. How do you get in on that? How does that become true for you if it's never been true? You believe. You believe. You believe the word of God. You believe that Jesus is who he said he is. Not you, who you make him up to be. And you believe that he did what he said he was going to do. And that is to save his people from their sins. You believe. You look to him and believe. It means you've got to admit a lot of things. It means you've got to admit that you were wrong. It means you've got to admit that you were lost. It means that you've got to admit that you've gone your own way and that that didn't work out so well. But today, you can be united to Jesus by faith. Just believe. We're going to sing a song now. The band is going to come on up. And um, this song says so much. All of you is more than enough for all of me. For every thirst and every need, you satisfy me with your love. And all I have in you is more than enough. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us these scriptures to understand and to see. But most importantly, to believe in who you are and what you came to do for us. Lord, give us believing hearts. Give us worshipful hearts to see you for who you truly are and to believe in you. In Jesus' name, amen.